let's go to Jonah 1. I'll read that for us. Jonah 1. We're going to start, pick up in verse 4. If you're unfamiliar, if you've got your Bible, get it out. If you're unfamiliar with where to, Jonah's kind of a hard book to find. It's really at the end of your Old Testament. Um, so use that table of contents if you need to, if you're following along, or you can follow along on the screens up above. We're picking up where Pastor Eric left off. Jonah's been given the word to go and preach to the great wicked city of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to do that. He's the prophet, the stubborn prophet here. So he's gone down to Joppa. He's getting on a boat. And so we're going to pick up in verse 4, Jonah chapter 1. And if you could please stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for God's word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Surprise. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, well, I'm, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he, he told them. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Just pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, so how did you uh, sleep last night? You guys all right? Soundly? Are you rested? Parents of little ones are like, no. Uh, if, I hope you are. If you're not, feel free to drift off during my sermon. Some of you do. You know who you are. 
I certainly do. I see you each week, and I love you the same. Um, we're sleep-deprived as people, are we not? Um, we all know this. Science says we all need between seven and nine hours a night. And studies show that on average, we're not quite hitting that mark. And uh, good news for you. Ready? Good news. You do require less of it as you age. Okay? It's for sure. Because do you know that newborn babies sleep on average of 19 hours a night? Now, if you have a newborn right now and yours is not, he or she is not sleeping that many hours, I'm so sorry. But that's crazy. 19 hours a night. Um, or a day, I'm sorry, in a whole day. Preschool, preschool kids, 14 hours on average. Young children, beyond that age, 11 to 12 hours. Teens and young adults, you ready? 10. 10 hours. Although, <laughs> studies show... Uh, that they're probably not getting it. And something like 86% of high schools start before 8.30 a.m. Do you know that, Kyle? Kyle's a principal. That's strange, despite sound evidence that shows later times produce uh, better attendance, better test results, fewer car accidents, and even less depression and self-harm. 10 to 20% of people in the world suffer from insomnia. I'm sure some of you in this room do. Uh, for many people, uh, they just don't sleep because of a partner who snores. Can I get an amen on that? Some of you? Anyone? You're like, I'm not acknowledging that. Uh, you know, snoring happens. You ready? ready for this? Fun fact. Snoring happens from soft tissue in the pharynx, <laughs> rattling when you're totally relaxed. Which, by the way, is why if you drink too much, you often snore horribly bad. All right? So if you needed an incentive to lay off um, the alcohol in the evening, this, is, this contributes to snoring. Um, are you bored yet with my sleep statistics? None of this has anything to do with this sermon. I, am <laughs> I had to use some of it. I can keep going for hours. I did a strange amount of research on sleep. Strange amount of reading on sleep because I am so intrigued, which I hope you are intrigued, by the simple fact that why in the world is Jonah sleeping? Why is he sleeping in a boat when the storm is clearly raging? The language in the Hebrew particularly, and it comes across somewhat in the English, but it's just this massive, massive storm. I mean, in actual Hebrew, it says that the ship pondered breaking apart, like it, it's animated almost. And he's sleeping. It seems like a small thing when you read the story that he's sleeping, but actually it's a critical element. There's a tactic to it, and the author, the author is using. You know, so Jonah, he's a prophet, right? Remember this, he's a prophet. And prophets do what? They preach. They preach. And he's been told to go to Nineveh, which is Israel's violent enemy. And Jonah doesn't want to do that. He hates these people. He thinks they're wicked, which to be fair, they are wicked. And we learned about that last week. Pastor Eric was talking to us about that. And so Jonah isn't just rejecting the call that he's been given, right? He's, in a way, he's rejecting God. I mean, he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. So he gets on this boat, and he heads in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh's in the east. He's heading west. And Tarshish is where he's going. Tarshish. So he boards the ship. Why? Well, like I said, um, this is weird. He's fleeing, and it's weird because he's a prophet, and prophets know God. 
They know the history of God. They know the power of God. They know the commitment of God. And so it's really strange when you actually stop and think about it. Why would a prophet of God be the one thinking that somehow this is a good idea? It's strange, really, when you... He's, he's, it's just pure, blatant foolishness, stubborn pride. And God throws a storm at him, hurls it at him, is what the text says. But it's, it's not isolated to Jonah, and you've got to catch that. That's important. What I'm saying is it's not like a comic book, like strip where there's just a cloud over Jonah. It's affecting other people, isn't it? It's threatening everybody on board of this ship. Now, what I want to do is I want to go back up to verse 3, and I want you to catch something. Um, and I want you to notice the repetition of the word down. You ready? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners, the sailors on the ship, were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, where did he go? Down into the inner part of the ship, like literally into the belly of the ship. And had laid down and was fast asleep. And so that the captain came to him and said, what, what do you mean? You sleep or arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Oh, the irony. God has, clearly has thoughts on what he's doing here. And they said to one another, Come, let's cast lots that, they may know, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast the lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now stop there. That downward language is important. Did you notice it? It's a brilliant tactic by the author because he's not just speaking geographically. He's speaking spiritually. You know, you say things like this. You use it. You know this to be true. You say things like, man, I was in a low place. Or, uh, man, I, man, I was like rock bottom. I hit rock bottom. We, we use language like that to describe when things are not going well for us. And so what's going on inside of Jonah? He's, what's he feeling? Is he confused? Is he angry? Is he depressed? Lethargic? We don't know. But the downward spiral has maybe worn him out because he's sleeping. <laughs> he's sleeping. I mean, the storm, think about this, it just, it's so bad. It's so bad that um, it's threatening to break the ship up, and the sailors who are sailing across the sea are, they're carrying merchandise probably to sell. It's got to be a bad enough storm for them to toss it into the sea. It would have been a total waste for them at, that, at this point. The trip is a waste. So we know it just through context clues, the storm is Horrible. Not to mention that they're sailors. They've seen storms. They wouldn't have been the type to panic when a storm hits unless they think and hint, they, they feel this sense of this is divinely bad. This is very, very bad. And yet, Jonah is sleeping. The contrast is deliberate and dramatic, and the storm is raging. The sailors are very much alert, aren't they? Um, they're scrambling. They're praying to different gods. They're polytheists. 
You know, they, so they're like, well, you pray to the sex god and you, 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 you pray to the, the, the rain god. I mean, any god. Well, who, how many gods are there? Just pray to all of them. I mean, they're just, they're freaking out and looking for any answer that they can possibly find. And yet Jonah's sleeping. And that's strange. What's going on? You're meant to ask, what's going on here? Uh, Rabbi Dr. Shmuley Yanklowitz, got that right, I think. Uh, he says this, to me, it seems possible that Jonah's actually depressed. Going to sleep at times of enormous stress can be a dysfunctional coping mechanism. One sleeps to escape reality. Amen? Amen. Professor Mark Kleiman says this, Jonah is a strange prophet without insight, without foresight, without compassion, and without courage. Most of all, he is without energy and without initiative. Throughout, he seems oddly passive. See, whatever Jonah's feeling, I think the author's trying to tell us that Jonah's nap in the middle of a really, really bad storm signifies something more complex than just a guy who's tired. Notice the exasperated question of the captain. He's a pagan, by the way. What do you mean, you sleeper? Or if you got the NIV, Yours just probably says, how could you be sleeping? Is one of the other trans- ways to translate it. And then he, he, the lecture goes further. Arise. Get up, man, is what he's saying. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us thought to us that we may not perish. I mean, he might as well have said to Jonah, why in the world aren't you praying, man? Aren't you like a preacher or something? And you're sleeping? Show some kind of awareness and concern about the situation. And here we have a boat in a storm. Everybody is acutely aware that at least a God, some kind of God, is up to something. I mean, you know, they, 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 know, they don't know much, but they know that, right? They're casting lots. It's a, in ancient times, that's a way of, you know, maybe that was putting names on sticks or, and drawing them out. I mean, essentially think of it this. They're rolling the dice, saying... We know this storm is bad enough that it's got to be a God. So they're very much alert to the fact that something spiritual is taking place. But the prophet, the most spiritual one in the room, is sleeping. So the only prophet on board, the prophet of God, he's sleeping. He's not sleeping like Jesus was sleeping on the boat because he was in deep peace. He's sleeping for some kind of strange, maybe even stubborn reason. And so the lot falls on Jonah, and so they begin questioning him. Let's look at it, verse 8. What's your occupation? Now, by the way, they're probably asking this list of questions because as polytheists, they're like, well, they would have had a God for everything, a God for your job, a God for your place, a God for your people. So they want to know every list of possible gods. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he says to him, (laughs) well, I'm a Hebrew. Ooh. Notice he goes to his ethnicity first, even though that's not what they asked first. They asked about his job. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. That's where you... The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what? Well, what's this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Now, don't miss the irony. 
Just stop right there. Look at it. Jonah's answer to a list of questions about his identity, right? They're asking him about who he is. The, his answer is, well, I'm one of God's people, and I really fear him. Oh, and by the way, he's the one who makes the sea. This insert laugh, if you're the reader, you're supposed to chuckle. Because the sailors would have heard that response and thought, are you kidding me, man? You, 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 you fear God? And your God, this God that you're talking about, that you are afraid of, is the one that made and controls the sea that we're on right now? You decided to get on a boat and cross the sea and in defiance to the God that made the sea? What's the matter with you? Wake up! Are you kidding, Jonah? This is the answer you should be thinking, or the thing you should be thinking in your head as you read the story. You should be reading that part, and you laugh, and you go, no, you don't, Jonah. I mean, I know you say you do. I believe, Jonah, that you actually believe that, but you don't because your life doesn't reflect it. You don't fear God. Not at all. It's weird when the world actually critiques the church, isn't it? When the world reveals the hypocrisy of what the church proclaims. It gets worse. Verse 11, they said to him, oh, well, what are we going to do to you, right? That the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It was growing. And he said to him, well, pick me up and throw me in, and then it'll quiet down. I know this is because of me. That's an opportunity for Jonah, isn't it? That question, what should we do? And as the reader of the story, you should be asking, well, okay, is this, is, this, is this Jonah coming around? I mean, you might be tempted to think, well, this is a confession of some sort, a kind of repentance for Jonah. And then is this a change of heart for Jonah? No, it's not. Think about it, right? If that's the case, he would have hit his knees and cried out, okay, God, you win. Okay, God, I'm yours. I'm sorry. I've been ignoring you. I've been running from you. I've been stubborn with you. And now my, my, my stubborn pride, my defiance, has threatened the lives of everyone around me. They don't deserve that. Right? I'm done running, God. I'm listening, God. I'm ready, God. That's what he could have said. But again, he's actually not praying, is he? He's still not praying. Jonah uh, doesn't give in. He gives up, and there is a difference. There's a big difference. I don't think Jonah's repentant at all here. I think Jonah's despondent. I mean, this isn't... I think you read that and you think, oh, this is an offering of sacrifice. I, sadly, I think it's just end-of-the-rope suicide. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. Oh, again, sometimes the world is more compassionate than the church. Interesting. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. That's not the prophet speaking, by the way. That's the pagans. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. It's funny. Jonah doesn't even have enough energy to throw himself into the sea. 
They picked him up, throw him in. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They're the ones that are actually afraid. <laughs> and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they're the ones that making vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the where? The belly. Just like he was in the belly of the boat, now he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As if this scene wasn't full of irony, you know, enough already, it just gets richer. The pagans, the outsiders, initially reject the idea of killing Jonah. Unlike the prophet, they're, a, they're more alert to offending the God of the sea than Jonah is. They've been alert the whole way through, haven't they? they they've been working their tails off, paddling and sweating through this storm, tossing things into the sea. They've been praying and seeking divine intervention, and now they know who's to blame for all this, Jonah, and yet they are still looking for an alternative to get him back safely. The comedic but sad part about the boat scene is that the pagans on this boat not only value human life more than the prophet of God does, but they end up being the ones who make sacrifices and vows to God they're the ones that actually fear God, more so even than the prophet of God. It's a, it's a funny little thing, you know, when you think about Jonah. He's the most pathetic, most pathetic prophet in the Bible that I can think of. Yeah, I think so. And yet he's the most successful he gets converts everywhere he goes. He, heck, he gets an entire city, as you'll find out real soon, to repent. Even the animals are repenting. And he's just disgusting at times. It just goes to show you what kind of God it. I mean, there's plenty of preachers that get into pulpits. They're a train wreck, and yet somehow people come to God. It's a funny little thing when you look up books on the story of Jonah. I've been doing that a lot lately. And um, there's so many children's books on Jonah. Have you ever noticed that? We just love the book of Jonah for children's literature. Um, I think we have actually tamed it down too much because of that. Now, I, I mean, I, I want kids to learn about the book of Jonah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I get it. It's a short story. It's, a, it's fascinating. Um, and I think maybe we think children will love it because it's got almost like comic book drama. But the strange thing about all that is this story is actually incredibly sophisticated when you think about it. The themes, the motifs of the book of Jonah are incredibly oriented towards adults, which I was just talking to Pastor Barry about this. You know, I think that about Disney now. I'm like, Disney, you ain't writing for kids. You are writing for us parents. Some of the stuff they write is sophisticated. Jonah's like that. But yet we've kind of neutered it in a way for children. I mean... It's telling. I think even like, remember VeggieTales? You know, I think this was the first movie that they made. Jonah. Why is that? I love that children would like this story, but I, I hope in our telling of the story, we actually have the guts to tell them and fully understand what the story is really about. Because the fish is not really the point of the story, guys. Jonah is tragic irony. Um, it's, it's satire. You guys like satire? 
films, stories, books like that, it's satire. It's a book written for God's people, but with a subversive ridiculing point. It's ridiculing us. That's what it's doing, whether you pick up on it or not. Think about it. Jonah is a prophet. Prophets are generally impressive people who are courageous and caring. You know, Jonah, Jonah's full name, you know what it means? Like in Hebrew, dove, son of faithfulness. <clears throat> the irony, you're supposed to get that. It's like you do the exact opposite of that, Jonah. Doves are ancient symbols of peace, and Jonah isn't at peace with God and what God is calling him into. He certainly doesn't seem to care about the peace of others, does he? He sleeps on the boat while other people are freaking out, scared. My point is this, Jonah sleeping in the boat isn't just a sign of physical exhaustion. It's a sign of spiritual and psychological apathy. He is cut off from himself and other people. He's asleep to himself. He has no awareness. He has no awareness of what he's actually doing, and he has no awareness of actually how he's coming off, and he has no awareness of what he's doing to the people around him. He's asleep to it all. He's aloof to who he is and at least who he has become. Jonah's been going down and down and down, and he's about to hit rock bottom. Literally, what lower can you get than in the belly of a fish? That's low. That's graphically low. And the rock bottomness that we're, I'm not going to get into the fish. That'll be next week. I'll get into that. But think about this. The rock bottomness that Jonah is experiencing isn't from drug addiction or, or gambling or alcohol. His rock bottom is just a lack of attention. <laughs> it's self-deception. That's his rock bottom. And, it's, and biblically speaking, it's far worse. Far worse when you have no idea who you've become. The hypocrite that you are. When you're completely aloof to it. And yet everybody around you sees it. That's a whole nother kind of low. He's not only completely unaware of how asleep he is to his real calling, his real identity, he's unaware of the impact around him. And that's the great lesson of the boat scene. Sadly, friends, God's people, that's me and that's you, God's people can become so spiritually and psychologically unaware of the tragic irony of their life. Do you know how many people, friends, as a pastor, I have met, sat down with, whether it's a membership interview, some kind of just care and counseling or whatever, or just getting to know them. And at some point in the conversation, I'll say something like, did you grow up in a Christian home? And they'll say, well, I mean, my mom or my dad would have said they were. Oh, no, what do you mean? Well, I mean, they... I mean, they weren't. I wouldn't say they actually lived it. I never saw them read their Bible. I never saw them pray. They'd go to church a couple times a year. I mean, how many times I've, I've had to listen to that conversation? I mean, it's almost like on repeat. The tragic, I mean, the book of Jonah is this book that's saying, here's what God's people are so often like. And it sucks us in through its drama, and we laugh at Jonah. It's not about Jonah. It's about you. It's about me. It's satire. Ed Feinstein says this, 
about Jonah. How can you sleep, shouts the captain. This is the question of the book, the question of all time. How can you be sleeping? How can you rest in oblivious serenity when the tempest rages about you? Or if you'd rather a pastor, here's, here's Timothy Keller in his book on Jonah. Here is Jonah, a prophet of God with a privileged position in the covenant community who is at every turn obtuse, self-absorbed, bigoted, and foolish. Yet he doesn't seem aware of it at all. Indeed, he seems more blind to his flaws than anyone else around him. How can this be? As I've been studying the book, uh, the story of Jonah, and I get a clearer picture of what God's saying to us through Jonah, I've been terribly convicted. I mean, this is just like, oh, my goodness. Can we move on to a different book, you know? Because you, re you realize if you dial in and you, get, you kind of drill down on the truth of when you're reading the Scripture, by the Spirit's work, Holy Spirit's work in you, you'll, you'll feel this deep uncomfortableness in you. And I have felt that in this book. Because you, you're, you're meant to read about Jonah's disgust for people. You know, I'm like writing notes about Jonah and seeing these things I've never seen before. And you realize, man, this guy is like, he's, he's, he's quite a loser, you know? Like, he's quite the loser, he has, a, he has a general kind of hypercritical disgust for certain people outside of the covenant family, the covenant, you know, the church, if you will. And he, he, and he has this apathy towards the lives of other people, and particularly those people that have failed or aren't as knowledgeable as he is because he's a prophet, and so he would have known his Old Testament. And we're meant to see not only his tragic hypocrisy, but lack of awareness of all of, of, his, of that, and then you're meant to, I think the author wants you to laugh, like to chuckle, to be like this guy. And then in the midst of your laughter, you're meant, it's meant to give way to a mirror and then a sting. You're laughing at yourself. I'm laughing at myself. Jonah is not just the anti-hero for our entertainment. He's our reflection. His tragedy, Jonah's tragedy, is my temptation every day to actually proclaim things, to say things, to have a, a Christian like identification card in my wallet. Like, that's who, this is who I am. I go to church. And then it's like, but your life, what does it say about you? Well, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about my proclamations. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord who made the sea. How often do we find ourselves completely aloof to the discrepancy of what we say we believe about God? You know, like his love for people, all people, all people. Colors, political persuasions, backgrounds, preferences. We talk about how God loves these people. We talk about God's mercy and his kindness. And yet we live defiantly opposed to compassion and care for people. How often do we fall spiritually defiant and we're not only asleep to that fact, but we're asleep to the impact that it has on the people around us. Like, the truth is, you know, some of us might be just unable, as I ask those questions, some of us just might be unable or just outright opposed to even answering the questions that I just asked. You're thinking about, <laughs> you're so spiritually asleep, you might even be thinking about something else altogether right now. 
You see, this story reminds us that we are deeply connected. That's just almost another aside. You know that Jonah teaches the web of human relationships, the interconnectedness of us all, both inside and outside the church. We think our lives, you know, are our business, right? But my spiritual defiance and my spiritual apathy is my business. It's a private matter. It does not affect you. This is what we've been trained in, in our culture to think as individualists, you know. It's not a private matter. What you do with your soul absolutely affects other people. It doesn't just affect, affect you. The sailors are praying and they're yelling and they're paddling furiously with sweat coming down their brow. And they're filled with dread and they're crying out to me as I say something like, oh, it's, this is my business. My spiritual apathy is my business. And the sailors are saying, are you kidding me? No, it's not. It's threatening my life. Wake up, sleeper. Our lives under God are deeply tied together. My disgust, my cynicism, my bitterness, and apathy towards my soul or towards God affects not only my well-being and my relationship with God, it affects the well-being and the relationship of other people. Now, I don't know what Jonah's spiritual stupor does to you. I don't. I, I hope at least, though, this, that we see our shared humanity here, that we feel that, we recognize that. We all, we all fall asleep to God's calling on our lives. I mean, if you've lived enough life, you know this to be true. And if you don't and you can't admit that, you are heading down. We all fall asleep to the negative impact that we're having on our environments. We just all fail, period, full stop. You fail. I fail. We all fail. If you haven't yet, just wait for it. You will. And we all find ourselves in moments and even long seasons of our lives when we're more aware and disgusted with the sins of other people than we are of our own. I'm great at confessing the sins of other people. Wonderful. I'm an expert in it. I should teach a class on it. But Jonah is a story not meant to heap shame on us. It's meant to highlight a God who doesn't quit on us even when we're running and asleep to our own failures. He doesn't quit. We might be asleep and aloof at times, but God is alert and compassionately chasing us. I mean, if, the reality is if you can't see and feel the tragedy in the story, you can't see the beauty of the gospel. You see, Jesus will eventually come along in the story of redemption that the Bible is trying to tell us. And he won't just die for our sins, my sins, your sins. He won't just die for our sins of hatred, classism, racism, abuse, neglect, whatever, fill in the blank, greed. But he will die for our apathy towards it. He will die for our lack of awareness that we're doing it. It was Jesus, if you can remember, when he was being killed, what did he say? What did he cry out? In prayer, Father, forgive them for what? They know not. They're asleep, Father. <laughs> they're not just horrible people. They're asleep to the fact that they're horrible, and they judge everybody else for their horribleness. And they're asleep. Forgive them. Forgive them. The book of Jonah will... It's fascinating, and I can't get into it because i got to end but the book of Jonah will end with a question. A question. It leaves it no resolution. 
What will Jonah do? It will leave Jonah's life unresolved. We'll get to that eventually. But we won't get an answer. You won't hear an answer from Jonah. Will he be softened by God's mercy? Will he? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that eventually. But in the meantime, I would say this. What will you do with what you see so far? Will we at least have the honesty and the courage to say, yes, yes, this is me too. I can be this way, Heavenly Father. If it's not for the mercy of your son, I'm sinking and I'm sinking. I don't know how you spiritually wake up if you're asleep. I, I, honestly, I, I, I actually don't. I, I, I know this much that, that Jonah eventually, and we'll get to this, I, I don't think Jonah wakes up from something that Jonah does. Jonah wakes up from something that God does. And I think that, that this is what you and I need to experience and we need to realize. I think there's a pleading and there's an asking of God, and I think we can be aware at least enough to that. But the reality is this is a God who works. He chases us down, and he grabs us sometimes by the scruff of the neck, and he says, wake up, sleeper. This isn't who you are meant to be. And so will we have the honesty and the courage to say that? If so, if that is where you're at and you just have the, the, the honesty and the courage to say, yes, this is me, this is me, I can be asleep sometimes, then there's a meal for you. There's a meal for you to take. And this meal, the Lord's Supper, this bread, this wine... This meal preaches to your conscience what Psalm 145 says. So let me just read it to you. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how asleep that you have been. If you call upon him, if you call upon Jesus, then he says, yes, yes this is my body broken for you. And this is the cup of wine. This is, the, this is my blood. It's shed for you. And so we all come, remember, we all come and take part in communion as failures, needing the son, needing the redemption, the reconciliation that comes through Christ alone, by grace alone. So if that is where you're at this morning, you're invited to come forward and take part in proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. If that is not where you're at, if you'd rather stay asleep, I'm so happy that you sleep here. And you can continue to come sleep here, and I will continue to come and graciously yell at you in hopes that one day you might wake up. Because he is the God of those inside the church, and he is the God of those outside the church. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. And may we all see that it's times we all fall asleep to what you've called, who you've called us to be, how you've called us to live, to serve, to worship, and to steward the life that you've given us. It's all grace, and may we come to see it, it that way. Wake us up by your spirit to what you've done and that you're chasing us. And, and, and as that penetrates into our own hearts, may we have that same kind of compassion and mercy towards our neighbors, even our enemies. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for this story for the courage, for not holding back, but delivering to us truths even when it stings. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.